Welcome to the Richie Flow Nutrition Podcast. My name is Cameron Borg. On this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Mike Belkowski. Mike is a doctor of physical therapy, podcaster, and CEO of red light therapy company BioLite. Dr. Belkowski integrates unique treatments such as dry needling, cupping, blood flow restriction training, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, and of course, red light therapy in his private outpatient practice in Montana. His popular podcast, The Red Light Report, is one of the best resources in the world on the topic of photobiomodulation, where Mike interviews experts and discusses the array of therapeutic applications of red and near-infrared light. I had a great conversation with Mike. I'm a huge fan of The Red Light Report and of red light therapy in general. Uh, Mike's work has been instrumental to my understanding of its therapeutic uses. Uh, Red light therapy is becoming much more widely used and recognized as the beneficial effects continue to be identified. Mike has vast experience working with patients, so he's uniquely informed about the beneficial effects of red light therapy in conjunction with the other therapies he uses in his clinic. To me, this makes him a primary resource on the topic of photobiomodulation. He's also very well versed in what it takes to make a good red light therapy device because he has been developing some of the best panels for years with his company BioLite. So with all that being said, I hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you so much for coming to speak with me today, Mike. I, I really appreciate it. I, um, I'm actually a huge fan of your podcast. Um, and I found out about you through our mutual friend, Dr. Stillman. Um, and you guys have had some awesome conversations about the benefits of red light as well. So I guess I was just wondering where, where along the path for you, did you discover, um, red light therapy, um, and what did you what did you think of it when you first came across it? Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me on, Cameron. It's a pleasure. Um, and I, I looked at your your guest list, and it's it's got some pretty hefty people on there. You got Gerald Pollock and, and my Dr. Michael Hamblin. So you, you've got some heavy hitters on your podcast. So congrats on that. Thank you. But to answer your question, my origin story, so to speak, uh, with red light therapy. So I'm a physical therapist by trade or a physiotherapist uh, for you guys, I think. Um, and it's actually a funny story, kind of a sidetrack here. When I was graduating PT school, my full intention was to work for a year or two in the States locally where I live, garner some experience, and then uh, move to Australia for, for a couple of years uh, and work there just because Australia is kind of the mecca for physiotherapy and physiotherapy uh, research. So it's a good place to work, especially as a young, young graduate. Uh, but, but at my first job locally, I met my now wife and I never made it down to Australia. So <laughs> it's, it's still on my to-do list, but a pretty good excuse for not making it down. Very there, good excuse. Um, yeah. But anyway, back to the red light therapy question. Um, yeah, so I'm a physical therapist by trade. And, uh, when I took that first job where I met my wife, um, the way I was utilized and really the way physical therapists are utilized in the United States in this allopathic system, which is very much so directed or um, how you treat patients is dictated a lot by the insurance companies. And so what I mean by that is they'll reimburse for certain treatments while I think I can use this other treatment that'll get the patient better but the the insurance companies might not reimburse it as well, if at all, 
And so your clinic owner is going to want you to do these other treatments that uh, they reimburse more, of course, to keep the doors open and cash flow and all that stuff. So anyway, again, that that's just part of the equation. But long story short, I didn't like how it's being utilized. I didn't like the quote unquote system. So I decided I'm not going to be dictated by insurances. I'm going to start my own cash-based physical therapy practice. And so by being a cash-based PT, which is kind of risky, so to speak, or it was, especially when I started, uh, people have to pay full cash. There's no insurance, obviously. But the point being, I get to treat patients how I want to. I can start utilizing these treatments that maybe insurances don't reimburse at all, but I believe, and the research shows, they're more effective. So for example, treatments I started utilizing right away and I became well-known for in my area was dry needling, which was the big one. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, Cameron, as far as being able to reduce pain um, of all sorts of type, sorts and types, meaning people could, could walk in with acute pain, they just twisted their ankle or, or sprained their knee or something, and, and maybe they had a balloon for an ankle or knee, and within one session, I can decrease that almost back to normal. Or people walking in with chronic lower back pain or chronic headaches and migraines, and easily within one to two, maybe three sessions, I can get their pain darn near down to zero. Whereas traditional PT is like, come see me two to three times a week, uh, six to eight weeks, and, and and hopefully we get you better. But it was along this path of finding these holistic or alternative treatment therapies um, that I came upon red light therapy because as being a cash based pra- uh, PT. Uh, you have to kind of, um, especially with where I'm from in Missoula, Montana, which I'm sure you guys don't know about in Australia, but it's a state in the U.S. And it's just a very uh, PT-dense city, meaning there's a lot of PTs there. So you kind of have to have something unique to to bring people towards you. And so that's why I started getting in, into these holistic treatments, not for the sake of being different, but again, finding treatments that are more effective, more efficient, and going to improve my patient's health and pain uh, quicker and more effectively. So again, dry needling, I started utilizing cupping, uh, blood flow restriction training, hyperbaric oxygen. And, and really I'm picking up these treatments well before the curve or well before the trend. Um, whereas some of these treatments are more common, uh, today in 2022, they weren't so much back in 2016, 2017. Um, and again, it was along this path of learning about these treatment techniques that I came upon red light therapy. Up to that point, I didn't really give light uh, a second thought other than uh, it's brighter when the sun's out, it's darker when the sun's down, and I can flip the switch to to brighten my house when it's darker at night. That was about it. I didn't really consider it and how it impacted my health. Um, and so I'd heard about red light therapy because I listened to Ben Greenfield and other biohacking podcast um, pretty consistently back in those times. And so I'd heard about photobiomodulation, but again, didn't really think about much of it other than it's this red light that kind of looks cool, but like it's light, what could it possibly do? But again, uh, reading all these books, of course, Amazon suggests um, or recommends certain books. And this one kept popping up that had five stars and a, and a ton of reviews. So it's like, you know, I can't ignore it much longer. I got to at least read it if it's this popular and this this well reviewed. And it's uh, I'm not sure if you've read it, Cameron. It's this I'm trying to pull the book here, the one by Ari Witten. Ari Witten, yeah. So I mean, this is probably the one most people would uh, turn to, and probably thanks to Amazon. It was written, gosh, 2018 is the copyright. So yeah, right, right around the time I started getting curious about it. Um, yeah, so I got that book actually late 2018, 
and I founded BioLite 2019, early 2019. Right. But so I read the book. I got the book and I read it. And right away, so the first quarter of the book or so is about the mechanisms of action of how red light therapy works. And right away, it resonated with me because, um, again, with me being an expert in dry needling and and knowing that basically some of the main mechanisms of dry needling is reducing inflammation and improving circulation. And that's how you can reduce a lot of types of pain, uh, musculoskeletal pain in the body. And so those are two of the main mechanisms of action. And of course, you know, and your audience knows with, with red light therapy. So I'm like, aha, I mean, if, if red, if red light therapy does this, I already know what dry needling does for reducing pain. So I'm already kind of bought in here. And then the cherry on top is a uh, red and near infrared light lights ability to optimize or augment mitochondrial health. And the more I dug into mitochondrial health, uh, after that, after reading that, it's like, holy cow, this is like, why don't more people know about this? Why aren't more people utilizing this? Uh, and of course, again, that was back in late 2018. And even back then, well, I shouldn't say that. I, I was saying it's kind of it was kind of popular back then, but it really wasn't, and it still isn't. Um, it's surely more popular now, four years later, and it's getting much more exposure through influencers and people like you and me having podcasts talking about it. So it's slowly growing, but I still think it's very much uh, in its younger stages of of getting mass adoption or mass exposure. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, so the first again, the first quarter of the book had the mechanisms and that mechanisms of action. And I was bought in right away to that point. And then the subsequent three quarters of the book or so is all the research and how it can help with skin health and hair health, thyroid health, athletic performance and sleep. And it's like, what can it help with? But then again, when you go back and realize that uh, one of the main things it's treating or not treating, but helping with is mitochondrial health and mitochondria are everywhere in every single cell of your body outside of red blood cells. It's like, well, shoot that makes sense because from the outside looking in when you hear that it can treat so many different things, it does start to sound like a snake oil pitch. But again, when you read or, or listen to, to someone like we're talking here, talk about it and how if it's impacting mitochondrial health and it's everywhere, then it truly does have the potential to help with a vast majority of, of modern illnesses, illnesses and modern diseases. So that was a long winded way of that was my catalyst was, uh, building my cash-based PT practice, came upon the book, fell in love with the book and, and, and the mechanisms of action and the research, looked at what the market had to offer. And at that time, it was either like really, really expensive um, devices that it's like, I don't know if they really uh, necessitate or, or uh, deserve the price point. But regardless, on the other side of the spectrum, you also have the extremely cheap products. And thus, you're probably getting pretty cheap results. You kind of get what you pay for to a certain degree, but regardless. So it seemed like there was, well, and on top of that, there was a relative dearth of uh, education for the masses or education for the lay person. Um, back then, it seemed like everyone was touting that you should just use red light therapy for 20 to 30 minutes every single day. And while that's probably better than nothing, if you're trying to get specific results, um, and I'm not sure how familiar you are with the research camera, but if you look into the research or you read the research, you you quickly understand that there are fine tunings you have to do if you're trying to treat wound healing or if you're trying to improve thyroid health or if you're trying to improve gut health or brain. Like it, it does necessitate slightly and sometimes drastically different protocols. 
So I could tell right away that the education curve was going to have to be um, improved as well for, for the mass adoption or the mass people to not only understand how it could benefit them, but understand if they were to get a device, how they're supposed to use it. Because while shining light on yourself is a relatively easy treatment, again, there are some nuances as far as should I use red and or near infrared? Um, you know, what's the duration of the treatment to get optimal results? How many times per week? And again, if you go back to the mantra of 2018, where most people are saying 20 to 30 minutes every single day, I would argue that that is leading towards the side heavily of over-treating. And while over-treating with, with red light therapy doesn't necessarily lead to negative or harmful consequences, which I think is one of the beautiful parts of red light therapy, it would lead to a person not getting the results they're looking for. So, and I know I'm kind of going down a lot of rabbit holes here. And if you let me go, I might go for another 60 minutes here. But um, <laughs> if we turn to the biphasic dose response, where it's that, that bell curve, we want to get those treatments right underneath that bell curve in that middle section there. Uh, if the dosage is too low, you're going to be on the far left of that bell curve. If you over-treat or the dosage is too high, you're going to be on the far right of that curve. And I think based on... Um, and again, this is kind of back to the 2018, 2019 era of when I started to, to get into red light therapy, most people touting that 20 to 30 minutes, that's, that's on the far right of that bell curve. And we also, I think it's easy to get into this mentality where it's like, I use the light for five minutes and got sweet results. So maybe if I use it twice a day for 10 minutes each every day, maybe I'll get better. So it's easy to get into this mindset of, of more is better. And so I kind of harp on both in my ebook and in my podcast and, and, and when I'm just answering people's questions that more is not always better. And in fact, you might get better results by decreasing your dosage or by not using it every day. Because just like exercise, if you over-exercise, you're actually going to, it's going to be a, a denigration to your, to your health to a certain degree. You need to allow your body and your cells to adapt to the stress, which light is a stress. Um, so I could keep going on, but let's, I'll hand <laughs> I'll yeah, yeah. Look, um, I, I, I could probably just let you go on because you've touched on so many things there that I already wanted you um, wanted to speak with you about. Um, but I guess like, like going back to this idea that, you know, when people ask you, what what does it do? And, and you have to sit there and think, well, kind of what doesn't it do? It does sort of feel like this snake oil pitch where it it's this almost this, it kind of affects everything in in a way. But you know, I've been thinking, well, the reason that red light and and these the wavelengths beyond the red that are invisible to us have such profound effects are because we evolved exposed to them essentially all day, every day. Um, so it's probably not that um, far-fetched to think that they would have um, such enormous effects to all the systems of the body because... We were outside all day and even on cloudy days, all that infrared light is coming through the clouds and at night, you know, we'd sit by a fire and then go to sleep. Um, so it's probably not that, um, not that crazy to think that the, that this photobiomodulation, uh, can affect all of those things at the same time. Um, I guess I'll just go right into it and, and sort of compare it to sunlight in your in your view how does um red light therapy you know the use of these um red light devices compare to using the sun to get doses of red and near infrared light how do they compare 
yeah. as far as, as what is a person trying to do, like general health and wellness? Yeah, or... I, I mean, like if you're if you're outside, if you're getting sunlight on a very regular basis, would you is that a is that a continual low dose, um, you know, red light therapy in a sense? Well, I guess it depends on what time of the day people are getting outside, because of course, it's going to be most red or the ratio of red is highest first thing in the morning. And so that's why I think to Dr. Jack Cruz, um, are you familiar with him, Cameron? I'm sure. Definitely, yeah. 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 So, so thanks to him, uh, I've been doing my morning sunlight, watching that, uh, the sun ri rise for how many years now coming up on four or is it three? Either way, thanks to him, I'm doing that. Mm -hmm. Uh, so to answer your question, it's like, if people are outside more so during the middle of the day, well, that's going to be a lot of UV irradiation and we have to be somewhat concerned with that and its potential impact on, on skin health or the detriment to skin health. Um, but as of course, as Dr. Jack Cruz would say, the more you expose yourself on a consistent basis, the longer you can be outside without having those negative consequences. But to answer your question, if a person is getting outside on a consistent basis, to your point, from an evolutionary perspective, that's what our cells are used to. We've completely flipped the script and you know swung the pendulum to the complete opposite side where not only are we indoors out of the sun, but we're compounding that that issue by being surrounded by non-native lights such as uh, fluorescent lights or blue lit technology with all these screens. So we're really doing a double whammy uh, on our cells, but of course our, our circadian rhythm as well, because we love being surrounded by our screens, especially at night, which inhibits melatonin production and, and wrecks our ability to sleep. And of course that, that alone wreaks enough havoc on, on a person's health. So uh, to your point, just getting outside, just getting back to nature on a very consistent basis alone will be a boon for someone's health. The caveat to that is these devices have a much higher concentration of red and near infrared light. And if you look at the research, I mean, there's a heck of a heck of a lot of benefits that come from using these lasers or using these LEDs. So if you're trying to treat a specific issue, granted, if you look at some of the history back in the you know 1800s and early 1900s using heliotherapy where physicians are literally using the sunlight to heal people that are otherwise not responding to other treatments, uh, you could certainly argue the sun is, is a massive, massive healer. But again, if you look at other conditions, and I'm just thinking like thyroid health, gut health, and you treat the gut-brain axis and you can reduce Parkinson's disease uh, via near-infrared light or red light, it's like there, there's a time and place for both for sure. And, and just to give another example, Cameron, because we're about to hit winter here in Montana, which is kind of doom and gloom, lots of clouds and not a lot of sun. So that's when I start ratcheting up my red light therapy usage on a consistent basis. Whereas during the late spring, early summer, where we get lots of sun and I'm outside much more often, I'm doing close to, to no red light therapy. Uh, there's a handful of treatments I like to do on a semi-consistent basis, regardless, such as treating my gut, treating my brain, uh, treating my mouth or, or, uh, using one of my, you know, guardian devices to treat inside my oral cavity. But again, there is a seasonality to how I use red light therapy based on how much sun exposure I'm getting. In a perfect world, I think, uh, kind of using um, using nature and using the technology we have, you can kind of blend it to get the best of both worlds. So I don't know if that necessarily answered the question, but always turn to nature first. And that that's kind of something 
I've adopted from Jack Cruz. But again, I wouldn't completely turn my head away from red light therapy because, I mean, I've noticed too many good things for myself personally, uh, for my pet, from my friends and family. It's like there's, and for my patients even, I've seen some crazy things happen such as uh, chronic hives someone was dealing with for several decades. And that's why she was coming to see me. I was doing full body dry needling sessions. And that was the first thing in her life that had helped reduce her her hives. Uh, pharmaceuticals weren't working. They were just like upping dosages or like polypharmacy where they're just switching different types of drugs to see what worked, but nothing really helped her. She's dealing with this for, for decades. So she came upon me for dry needling and I would do my full body dry needling, which in my mind is reducing systemic inflammation, improving circulation um, throughout the whole body. And she would see me maybe once a month, every once every three months, because that's how well it worked. I wouldn't have right. to see her that often. But it also came to a point where I was, I was, and this is kind of in the middle of when I was building BioLite, so I didn't really push upon her red light therapy right away. But it came to this point where it's like I'm seeing her every two or three or four months, and it's like, geez, I think you should try this red light therapy thing. Like, I didn't want to push it on her. Like, it was kind of this odd situation of me having this company. I didn't want to, like, push my product on her, so to speak. But at some point, I could not tell her because of the research and the results people are getting with red light therapy. So long story short, she, uh, per my recommendation, started utilizing, or she got herself a, a full-body red light therapy panel. And right away, her hives were just like, gone basically after using it on a semi-consistent basis and that's why I, I don't know what your thoughts are on this Cameron but when people are dealing with autoimmune issues or where there's like a systemic issue fibromyalgia um, like in her case hives or, or uh, RA rheumatoid arthritis all the all these autoimmune issues uh, Hashimoto's I always say that I think, and I don't have research to back this, this is just my thought process, doing full body is probably the best bang for your buck because if it's autoimmune, it's all over your body. So if you can immerse your cells on a, on a consistent basis with red and near infrared light, I think that's going to do your best versus, yeah, I think you can do really well by treating the thyroid directly, but I think doing full body, I think you may get better results. I don't know. But that was, again, another diatribe. I digress. No, that that's fantastic, and it's great to hear that results like that um, actually happen. Um, and you you know, with these autoimmune conditions, also with things like chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, yeah. where people are just really struggling to get any help whatsoever. Um, certainly, I think uh, getting bathing the body in in these wavelengths that appear to really uh, give mitochondria what they need to actually start working again. Um, I think in conditions like that, I mean, the, the evidence on rheumatoid arthritis seems uh, one of the strongest um, in the literature as far as the use of red light therapy. Um, and, you know, I've, I've read it in books about people having, you know, absolutely incredible reductions in, in pain just based on short sessions. Um, and that's, that's another thing that, you know, you mentioned before, this dose response curve. Um, it's not more is better. And something that I found quite interesting when speaking to Glenn Jeffrey, who's been working on macular degeneration and using red light to repair the retina, they use like one to two minutes um, once every few days. Uh, it's not like you need to stare into a red light for 20 minutes. 
it's this really tiny dose and they're trying to work with um, near-infrared wavelengths now so you don't even see it. Um, yeah, yeah, that's huge. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it is strange to think that sometimes less is more. Um, but I wanted to get into, because you are you have quite an intimate knowledge about what goes into making these devices, um, what are the particular wavelengths that are most beneficial and why do those particular wavelengths work to produce the results that they do? So pretty much everyone uses the same... A couple of wavelengths, red being 660 nanometers and near-infrared being 850 nanometers. Um, and then some people integrate multiple spectra of red and multiple spectra of near-infrared. Uh, but I guess it all, all comes down to what the research has been showing as far as what wavelength gives the best bang for your buck for, for overall conditions. I think, of course, over the years... And, as the research continues to come out, we're seeing that potentially certain organs or certain tissues are responding to a certain wavelength of red better than other tissues. Or for example, let's say one responds to 620 and another responds to 625 or or what have you. And same with near infrared. And, and on top of the wavelength difference, um, we're also seeing there could be a timing mechanism, which makes sense if we think about uh, all the all the clocks that our our cells and tissues have, if we look at the uh, our circadian rhythm, and I think the most recent piece that I'm aware of was like you spoke about with eye health. I think it came out about a year ago now, which is crazy because it feels like it still just came out. But uh, the piece of research that showed looking at red light again, very low dosage. To your point, in, in eyes and skin have some of the lowest dosages, and I harp on that when people are considering eye treatments it's like these panels are, are relatively high powered so either you need to be standing way back or consider getting a device that's much lower powered to make uh, uh the treatment dosage more uh easier to attain versus blasting yourself with these high power devices but anyway going back to the timing issue um doing a one red light session in the morning led to a statistically significant increase in visual and color acuity for a week. Whereas doing that exact same treatment in the afternoon led to zero results. So we're seeing that there's some, as they put it in the research, like uh, the mitochondria have shift work or they work in shifts. So apparently the mitochondria in the eye respond to light much better in the morning versus not at all in the afternoon. And Maybe that has something to do with watching the sunrise and there's there's actually something to that. I don't know, but that's just what that piece of research showed, uh, which I found pretty interesting. I'm trying to think of another one, timing-wise. But to your point, I think one of the pieces of research I recently read had to do with, or it was a review, and they were reviewing near-infrared lights impact on eye health. But to your point, I think that's, in, that's a much more palatable treatment because you're not having to combat the abrasiveness of a potentially bright red light uh, if you could do near infrared i think that's much much easier to do yeah glenn was talking about perhaps developing a, a strip of um near infrared lights that you'd put on the top of your laptop so that when you opened it up in the morning you just you'd get your minute or two and you wouldn't even notice that it was there um and yeah the the fascinating thing about the the timing issue because he did these. He and his group did those studies a few years ago and got no results. 
So they stopped looking. And then another group, I think uh, somewhere else in the UK, repeated them but did it in the morning and got all these results. And that's when it twigged that time of day actually uh, makes makes a huge difference. And the way he explained it to me was that when you wake up in the morning, your mitochondria are more likely to have a bit of extra energy, a bit of extra reserve capacity to do other things um, like um, you know, repairing, um, and, and fortifying the cells against damage. Whereas at night they're kind of worn out and they're not going to respond as well to the stimulus of red light. So yeah, uh, the, the time of day thing is something that's, I, I hope is more explored because I think it could, it could even bring about better results. And, um, hopefully in, in the research, they start to include, uh, more information about time of day exposure. Um, because what they're what they're talking about is uh, with regard to exposing first thing in the morning makes sense because that's when the ratio of red and near infrared light is highest in the sun. So evolutionarily, it makes sense, um, and it's kind of good to know that you don't need to be strapping on a, a red light panel, you know, for hours <laughs> in a day right. to to get the right results. And um, you know, I've even got like a a pen light that has um, two, uh, it has three LEDs in it and it cuts off after two minutes. It just has an automatic cutoff timer. And, um, you know, I, at first it annoyed me because I was like, what if I wanted to use it for a longer time? But, um, you know, I'm, I'm coming to realize that, you know, you really don't need much and, and to charge the mitochondria battery, which is kind of what these red lights are doing. They stay charged for a few days sometimes. So, um, particularly if you're taking care of yourself, they, you probably don't need to do it all the time. Um, yep, agreed. But, well, Cameron, before you continue on, um, was this thought process of doing red light therapy in the morning specific to the eyes, or is it for the whole body that it's best for red light therapy treatments? My my guess would be that it 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 has application other elsewhere other than the eye, but. I don't think that's been tested yet. Um, I, I hope I hope they keep uh, looking into it. They'll probably keep doing all of their research as far as red light and eye health. They'll probably keep doing it in the morning now that they know. Um, but as far as as far as the other parts of the body, I see no reason why, if his hypothesis is correct, that mitochondria have more reserve capacity first thing in the morning. I, I haven't, uh, it, it seems logical to me that red light therapy first thing in the morning would give you your best bang for bang for your buck. Um, regardless of what you're treating, regardless of what you're treating. I mean, if it's, if it's got anything to do with the mitochondria, then it's possible that light first thing in the morning is the way to go. That's, that's just my, my thought. If, if Glenn's hypothesis is correct, then that may be the case, but there may be other factors at play. I, I really don't know. Um, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, I just kind of makes sense to me. And it's probably not that hard to get a small dose of red light when you wake up in the morning. Um, particularly if you've got a, you know, a full panel or something, you can just switch it on and stand in front of it for a few minutes. And then you sort of charge it up for the day ready to go. Yep. Um, I don't know, does that, that, that sort of makes sense to you? I, I'm not sure if that's been explored in any other books, this, this timing issue. No, I get that question a lot, though. Uh, but it does make sense based on evolution. If our cells were outside, so to speak, 
that's where they would get their red light is in the morning. So there's probably some entrainment there over thousands or millions of years that they're getting their red light in the morning. So, uh, and a little bit at night too, I suppose with the sunset, same, same kind of thing with that ratio. Mm. I don't know, but I I agree with you. It makes sense based on that and the information we have with the eye now that, that they're, uh, basically non-responsive in the afternoon and onward. Yeah. I mean, it may be different because the retinal cells are the most energy demanding cells in the entire body. So maybe that's where you're going to see the most dramatic um, time of day difference. Um, but yeah, again, I don't know. But on the other uh, on the other sort of end of the spectrum, I was speaking with one of Glenn's colleagues and he was speaking about his hypothesis about why blue light is so damaging in the mitochondria. And his hypothesis is that there's this pre uh, precursor to heme um, because heme is made in the mitochondria, this precursor molecule called protoporphyrin that has a big peak in absorption in the blue range, so around 420 to 450 nanometers. And when it's hit by blue light, um, it creates single oxygen. It's very, very damaging to the cell to be exposed to blue light. And his hypothesis is that our cells, our mitochondria make heme at night, specifically because evolutionarily there was no blue light at night. So it was a very safe time to, to make heme. And now, you know, we're sitting under, um, you know, fluorescent tubes and, and cool LEDs at, at, at all hours of the night, exposing our skin to blue light that's potentially creating a lot of single oxygen through this protoporphyrin. So... That's that's just another sort of time of day thing re- regarding light, where the body seems to have curated specific activities for for certain times of the day, um, and I think I think there's a good chance that he's right. Um, and both he and Glenn have said that uh, artificial light is the biggest public health issue that we're facing today, and I couldn't agree more. Uh, and I think red light and red light therapy has to be part of this conversation to. Um, not only balance the spectrum that we're exposed to throughout the day from artificial light, but also to repair the damage directly. So, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot going on in this field. Yeah, that's the first time I've heard that hypothesis. But just hearing you, that makes total sense. Uh, as far as why blue light's damaging it, especially at night. Um, and I always tell people, red light therapy would not be such a big deal or these gadgets and panels would not even be necessary to us to a large degree if if we weren't dealing with this non-native light issue that, that you're speaking about um if we were outdoors like farmers basically all day most days getting our getting our sun uh getting our exercise outside not not in the gym under fluorescent lights um all of these things eating food that's been irradiated by the sun uh, I mean, there's all these things that how sun affects us, we might not even think about. But uh, again, if we were doing all of those things, like we were a couple hundred years ago, I mean, maybe you'd use red light therapy to heal a wound or to, uh, gosh, I don't know. Like, that's how impactful light or sunlight is on a consistent basis, like you and I spoke about at the top of this, this podcast. Um, sunlight's basically the gold standard, right? And, and of course, red light therapy devices offer a higher concentration and there's benefits there. But like we're discussing now, if we weren't cooped up inside and if we weren't constantly surrounded by 
you know, Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and, and all these invisible uh, uh, forms of light that are uh, bombarding our cells on a consistent basis, well, shoot, we wouldn't really need red light therapy to a large degree because our mitochondria would be humming along as they should be. So, yeah, red light therapy is basically uh, a pretty cool technology that's helping us combat or, or to a certain degree mitigate the the damage we're doing to ourselves with all this non-native light. Yeah, look, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, now you're you're quite you're quite an expert in you know the uses for of red light for all these different sorts of um, issues. So I was wondering if we could just sort of go through each one and talk about maybe like a protocol that could be used and and what the research says and and why you think it might be working. Um, so red light and, uh, red light therapy and neurodegeneration, things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. Um, how is it working and, and what, what sort of protocols have you seen, uh, work? Uh, so a lot of those specifically, I haven't seen or use it like on myself or other people personally, but just like transcranial photobiomodulation. Yeah. Um, well, the nerves since they're very energy demanding, are very mitochondrial dense. So it stands to, uh, it makes sense that if you can get red or it'd have to be near infrared to penetrate that deep, if you can get near infrared light there uh, and can improve mitochondrial health and then improve the energy status of that cell or that tissue or that organ, well, then it should return or, or you know, start heading back towards operating normally, whether it's a, nerve or you know part of the tissue of the brain or what have you uh, and then there's that gut brain axis i alluded to this a little bit ago where mm. just treating the gut can improve symptoms of alzheimer's and parkinson's uh and and mood behavioral disorders such as you know depression or stress what have you just by treating the gut because of that gut brain axis and that's, that's um, I think I said this really quickly, but that's one of the treatments I do on a semi-consistent basis is just irradiating my stomach or my, my gut with near-infrared light, both to optimize my uh, gut microbiome, but then secondly, to tap into that gut-brain axis and just help with, you know, anything upstairs in my brain, uh, brain health-wise. Um, and then I guess if, I know you're talking neurodegenerative diseases, but also looking at concussions, which is quickly yes. coming onto the scene with, especially here with American football and just you know, soccer is a big one for concussions, but sports in general, uh, concussions galore. Um, and there's some really cool research with concussions and how red light therapy can mitigate or kind of accelerate the, the recovery process. Because uh, one of the worst things that happens with a concussion is that you're much more susceptible to getting another one until it's fully healed. So if you can... Uh, decrease the recovery time, then you can hopefully mitigate or prevent uh, a subsequent bonk on the head or what have you from uh, making things even worse. Because you know, once you get that second concussion or that third concussion close in a close time period, then things actually get worse and worse exponentially and it's tougher to recover. So that's a big area of red light therapy I'm excited about. And I, I think there's a time in the future where the sports world is going to have to adopt some type of a device where Someone gets bonked on the head, they're laying there on the field, and they're going to be walking off the field with something on their head, like a red light therapy device, just to begin that process of the healing process with near-infrared light. And to kind of tap or uh, uh, to to uh, 
echo your sentiment about how the eye and the uh, the retinal nerves are so energy intensive and thus mitochondrial dense. When we talk about neurodegeneration, um, or if really if we look at any disease or process disease process that comes on somewhat early in life, and what I mean by that is like you know 50s, 60s, 70s, where we have our visions going down, our our mental status is declining, um, heart conditions, you know, cardiovascular issues are are a big deal. Well, the, the thing that links all those together is that they're very energy intensive. And by, by that, I mean, if you begin having a low energy status in your cells, meaning dysfunctional mitochondria, the first places those are going to show up is where the mitochondria are most dense. So where they're the most dense, they're also prey to degenerating the quickest, that cell or that tissue or that organ. So again, that would be the eyes, that would be the brain, that would be the heart, a liver and skeletal muscle. Um, these are the areas that are going to fall quickest and hardest if you have dysfunctional mitochondria. And you're going to have dysfunctional mitochondria if you're not exposing your body to proper light nutrition on a consistent basis. So when I'm thinking about neurodegenerative diseases, like we're talking about the brain, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and MS and that kind of stuff, um, that's that's as Dr. Doug Wallace would say, that's directly affected or secondary to mitochondrial dysfunction. And so I don't, I, I can't really speak to specific research articles off the top of my head about like uh, what wavelengths they used or, or what uh, duration or whatnot. But I do know that neurodegenerative diseases in general uh, require pretty high dosages. A, uh, a a, because it's the tissues are so deep in the body, whether it's the spine, uh, the spinal cord. Uh, most nerves are pretty darn deep in the body because with dry needling, that's what I'm trying to affect is the nerves. Mm -hmm. um, the brain, you have to get through the skull. So let's say, you know, 7 to 10% of the light actually makes it to your brain. And that means, you know, your dosages have to be pretty long to get a decent dosage to the brain. So in general, they're longer doses, doses uh, dosages and it has to be near infrared light because the red light's not going to penetrate deep enough to to affect those nerves or those nervous system organs. Yeah, I, I've noticed um, there's a, a company, Violite, you probably know them, where they're yep. doing intranasal. Um, I've always wondered whether that's um, a, a, a better route of delivery for, for red light. Um, I asked Michael Hamblin this. He seemed pretty nonplussed about whether it was any better or not. Um, what if it's near infrared? Are you saying red or near infrared? Uh, I, I'm not sure. I think I think the different models have different um, different wavelengths, but I'm not sure what the benefit of doing red over near infrared would be in a situation like that, because obviously you want as much right. penetration as possible. But um, you know, um, I guess going going back to what you said before, I've always pictured a future in sport where when you come off the field and sit on the bench, you have to put uh, uh, some sort of red light therapy device on. Um, and whether that's, you know, uh, football, uh, American football or um, soccer. Uh, I always worry about the soccer players because of the way that they head the ball. Um, surely that's, you know, these tiny, tiny concussions over and over and over again. Um, 
So that's that's possibly something we'll be seeing. And I know there's, uh, I can't remember her name, but I think she she works with Violet and they're working on um, ex-football players and a sort of uh, preventing uh, neurodegeneration in them. So it seems like, seems like a pretty fruitful area of research. But um, you mentioned the gut before. Um, I've been very interested about using... Uh, red light therapy on the gut and I did ask Mike Hamlin about this and he sort of said well it's not going to it's not going to make it deep enough like it's not going to get into the uh into the in, into the intestines um sure. so but I'm not sure I don't think anyone's really tested that or at least I haven't seen that tested that was just his sort of speculation um but is, you is know, that due to adiposity like people having too much adipose tissue or does he just I, think in general it would? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it, it certainly if if you've got a lot of uh, excess adiposity, then the 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 task becomes much greater. Um, I I'm I'm very thin, so you know I can I, you know I was thinking if I put something close to my gut, I don't see why it wouldn't reach that far. But regardless, it it, it might make it. It might not. Does mm-hmm. it have an effect on the microbiome? I, I haven't. I hadn't heard that anyone had measured um, actual changes in the in the composition of the microbiome following red light therapy. I believe so. They were on mice models that they were able right. to see, uh, like an improvement in the ratio of harm uh, beneficial bacteria to harmful bacteria. And I don't remember if they have measurements for or like the oral microbiome. I think there is. But don't quote me on that. Where they they did see an increase in, uh, what is it, formicutes to to back uh, bacteroidetes or something like that. And right. again, beneficial to uh, harmful. They they did see an improvement. Yeah, well, so that's I mean, why I like using you know my my oral uh, device on a semi consistent basis as well is is to to help with that that side of things because uh, I'm not sure if you've interviewed or talked to like a biological dentist or a holistic dentist, but not yet. Uh, the the first uh, guest on my podcast was one Dr. Kelly Blodgett here in the U.S. and just listening to him outline the implications of your oral health, not just for the sake of your oral cavity, but for your entire body, it blew my mind and it you know kind of changed my mindset on uh, my my oral health. Not that I was doing anything wrong, but it's like wow. I, I really need to like fine tune my thing, my my routine because it impacts your heart, it impacts your gut, it impacts your brain, it impacts everything. Um, and there's actually a post today I saw on Instagram. Someone showed a uh, like a meridian chart and how every tooth or every uh, everything relates to a certain tissue or organ. And so it's like, geez, Louise. Uh, so that's why I do red light therapy in my mouth on a semi consistent basis. Yeah, I, I think that's a really fascinating thing to get into because as far as I'm aware, um, you know, I haven't seen any other companies doing a, a, a red light therapy that goes into your mouth and, and gets onto your teeth, um, which is very interesting to me because um, teeth are the only are the only like bones that don't have marrow. Um, I was doing some uh, reading before one of my podcasts about uh, red light therapy. And it seems that if you can get to the marrow with red light, you can stimulate these, um, what are called mitokine responses. So basically these, 
um, these molecules get secreted and, and they can go all over the body um, to upregulate mitochondrial function. So theoretically, you all you had to do was access the bone marrow somewhere and you could and you could benefit the whole body. And I thought, oh, I, w- I, I didn't know at the time, but I, I thought, I wonder if teeth have bone marrow because then you could just shine it on the teeth. Turns out they don't have bone marrow. So that was a bit annoying, but um, <laughs> presumably red light has, because they're bone and because they're, you know, rich in, rich in these, um, well, I might be wrong, but teeth are rich in these collagen, um, sort of molecules that sort of keep them nice and strong. And if they're exposed to red light, I, I have no reason to think that that wouldn't be beneficial for them. So, um, you know, what, what is this red light doing when you, when you expose your mouth to it? Well, it's kind of interesting because uh, I don't want to say preponderance, but if you look at all these different segments of, of red light therapy, you know, hair health and skin health and fat loss and women's health, it's like a lot of the research is in the oral health category because dentists use it a lot. So I guess that's easy access to get some good research done. So to your point, it's kind of interesting. There isn't more, there are more companies trying to figure out ways to integrate red light therapy into your mouth because gosh darn there's a lot of research there um gum health is a big one i know a lot of people that have um not personally but like people in general have pretty poor gum health and gum structure where it's like they floss and their gums are constantly bleeding or, or what have you gum diseases from chewing and smoking and, and just poor health habits um there's not a ton of research in these specific areas but there's some on helping prevent enamel erosion helping with tooth sensitivity, of course, any type of post-surgical healing it's going to help with. So again, the dentist or the oral surgeons there. Um, and I would argue pre-treating your mouth before surgery would also accelerate, just like in my world of physical therapy, if you can strengthen your quads before going into an ACL or a total knee surgery, they're going to make your uh, recovery much quicker because your quad will be stronger post-surgery than if you weren't to do that. And that's kind of a rate-limiting factor is your quad strength. So same thing. If you know you're going to have oral surgery, try to get some consistent red light therapy in, you know, at least a couple of weeks or several weeks or even a couple months before that surgery. So that way your post-surgical healing is going to be likely going to be accelerated. So, and again, we talked about the oral microbiome and the potential implications of that, which kind of runs, you know, systemically. So pretty profound effects there. Um, What else? And I also wonder, I don't think any research has pointed this out. I'm just thinking here. Because the enamel erosion, that's an interesting one, isn't it? A lot of um, enamel erosion has to do with, you know, an acidic environment. And an acidic environment uh, can be secondary to cavities or having uh, bacteria on your teeth which produce that acid. So anyway, we know that by exposing yourself to light, that is essentially free electrons or bringing in a more alkaline uh, aspect or, or environment. So you're kind of negating or combating that acidic environment in your mouth. So I just wonder if by doing red light therapy, you're kind of neutralizing that acid by bringing in some some alkalinity, so to speak. I don't know. I'm just spitballing there. But um and that's how I think of it a lot with the body in general, because a systemically 
inflammatory body is a very acidic environment for your body. So by doing red light therapy, by modulating inflammation, again, you're kind of reducing the acid exposure, that acidic environment and bringing it more to a more neutral or basic or, you know, alkaline environment, which allows your body to thrive. Um, yeah, but the, for, for oral health, those are the big ones off the top of my head. Well, it sounds like what you're talking about there is this um, shift in structure when water is exposed to red light. Uh, you mentioned Gerald Pollack before. Yeah. Um, so in your, in your mind, uh, I'm not sure there's a whole lot of research looking into this, but water is the most abundant molecule in our body and it is a, it is a red light chromophore, meaning that it in, does interact with red light. Um, probably further in the um further up in the in the wavelengths um but do you see a lot of these benefits that are seen from uh, red light therapy through water do you think water is one of the main uh, mechanisms by which this is working I, we've spoken a lot about mitochondria um which are definitely um targets for this red light therapy but water is one that is probably underappreciated it's got to be right. Um, yeah. And I remember just from one of the big takeaways I had from Gerald Pollack's book, the, is it called the fourth phase of water or something like yep. that? Um, is that in order to structure water, red is better than other, any other visible wavelength, but infrared or near infrared is best. So the longer you can expose water to near infrared light and the higher the intensity, so the higher the intensity for longer, you're going to structure the water more and more and more. Um, again, I don't know exactly what the implications are for that and and uh, our body via red light therapy because we've kind of talked about more is not better. So I think there's some interesting interplay there. Um, I think what that book was speaking to is more like if you had a glass of water, if you irradiate it with infrared for a longer duration and a higher intensity, you're going to structure that water. So when you consume it, it's more hydrating and healthy for you. Um, but as far as our body, it's like, yeah, there's gotta be because our body should be full of this fourth phase, this biological water. And one of the end products of mitochondrial, uh, respiration or mitochondrial production is not just ATP, which we get focused on because that's of course crucial to all of our tissues and organs and cells. But another byproduct is that bio is that fourth phase of water. So by having a more functional mitochondria, you're actually going to be producing more of this biological water which of course is then going to lead to a more hydrated and healthy body so uh but then like to your point if even just irradiating that water with with this red and near infrared light what are the implications well i gotta think they're good yeah i, I agree and, and i i hope people more people look into this although it seems like a bit of a dicey area to go if you want to make a career as a researcher um so some people are going to have to maybe put their careers on the line a little bit but um, yeah, I, I can't help but think water is a big story uh, in why red light is, is so beneficial. Um, but why that is precisely, I think we'll have to find out down the track. Um, right. One thing I did want to touch on that you mentioned earlier was thyroid health. Um, now, to my understanding, the thyroid is an organ that's relatively easy to access um, with uh, red and near-infrared light because of its proximity to the skin. Um so 
what what effect is there shining red and near infrared light directly onto the thyroid? Well, for people dealing, it's just like inflammation. We always hear, or it's always said that like red light therapy reduces inflammation, and well, that's not really true. It modulates it. So that's the beautiful thing about red light therapy is it, it gives you what you need. If something needs to be increased, it'll increase it. If something needs to be decreased, it decreases it. So really the the proper vernacular is it modulates inflammation. That's what red light therapy does is it modulates a bunch of these biological processes, again, to where, where your body needs it. Uh, so, so with thyroid health, if it's healthy, well, maybe you'll, it's a prophylactic treatment and you'll mitigate or prevent any thyroid issues from coming your way. But if you're dealing with some sort of like Hashimoto's thyroiditis, well, uh, you have some imbalance going on there. And I forget the exact research, but um, red light therapy is, based on this research, is like one of the only things that it helps people significantly decrease their pharmaceutical intervention. And sometimes people can get completely off of them. Uh, you're you're decreasing the, the antibody production. Um, yeah, I'm not a thyroid expert per se. Um, man, I almost want to kind of look and cheat to give you more specific answers. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's one of those interesting um, cases because you can actually reach it quite readily with, with red light, whereas sure. other things like, like the kidneys um, or the liver, you know, it's, you're probably not going to be able to get... Um, you know, significant doses in, in a short period of time. So, uh, and I know guys like Jack Cruz say that if you're, if you're under artificial blue light, you need to cover up your thyroid because it's actually so close to the surface of the skin that even the blue light can uh, have an effect on it. Now, I'm not sure if that's true, but um, if it's even remotely true, then, then red and near infrared light are definitely making its way all the way down and, and having at least interacting with it um quite intense it's a very radio sensitive organ right mm. and that's you know to your point that's probably why it's so superficial it's so close to the surface while that's great for red light therapy i mean again if you're surrounded by you know these negative uh wavelengths or or, or otherwise then it's much easier to, for it to you know cause a detrimental effect mm. and you know to to your point when you were talking about modulating responses, which I think is much more important than just being unidirectional, um, you know, red light therapy um, increases the production of reactive oxygen species in the mitochondria because the mitochondria actually start working um, a lot more efficiently. So as they churn out more energy, the product is more reactive oxygen species. Um, and that comes back to this um, melatonin story um, that I'm sure you're aware of that paper that, um, that goes over, I think it's called melatonin and the optics of the human body, um, talking about the action spectrum of melatonin production, uh, and why red light upregulates the production of melatonin. Um, and it's be precisely because it's this modulator, uh, rather than this unidirectional effect. So it's kind of like a, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, an immunomodulator, where if you have an overreactive response, it downregulates it, and vice versa. So, 
Yeah, and that's like why red light therapy can help with either hyper or hypo uh, thalamus um, issues or not thalamus, uh, thyroid issues. So whether it's hyper or hypo, well, then it will help decrease or increase as as, as appropriate. Mm -hmm. um, so to your point, I mean, that's a beautiful thing about red light therapy. And I say this all the time, but it's non-invasive, non-pharmaceutical. And it really just gives the body and the cells what it needs to uh, get back to to its thriving state because uh, the body is very resilient. So if you just give it what it needs and uh, uh, needs to operate properly, gosh, you're you're going to reap the benefits from from a health perspective. Do you have a protocol for skin health? Uh, a lot of people would probably be interested in using red light therapy to reduce wrinkles um, and make them stay looking younger for for longer. Do you do you have any protocols specifically for that? Well, I'll tell you what, that's probably the number one reason people use red light therapy is for skin health. I'm pretty sure that's like by far the number one reason. Um, and it's tough to give just a blanket statement on a protocol because when I develop a protocol, I'm just taking the information I'm seeing in the research, synthesizing the good the good research to to develop uh, the protocols that are in that ebook I've I've made over the past handful of years. Uh, and what I mean by that is those protocols are essentially a bunch of ingredients thrown together to provide a dosage. And in the end, that's what a person needs to utilize is that dosage because all devices aren't created equally. They're going to be emitting different light irradiances, so different light powers. And that's just one, um, one, one of the variables when dictating the dosage. You have the light irradiance. You have the distance you are from that device because the closer you are, you can increase the light irradiance, so to speak. But then as you get further away, it gets exponentially lower, which can be good or bad depending on what you're trying to do. But again, that's just one variable. And then, of course, the duration of the treatment. And again, that all leads to how many jewels is your body being exposed to or are you absorbing? So in 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 general... Again, skin, especially anti-aging skin, is one of the lowest dosage treatments, kind of just like the eye. Uh, let's just say you're using a typical device that has between 100 and 140, 150 milliwatts per centimeter squared, even though that's a decently big range. But whereas I would say a general health and wellness tr uh, protocol would be, let's say if you're doing the full body, I would do... Uh, five minutes on the front at about six to 12 inches away, five to 10 or five minutes on the back, six to 12 inches away using both red and near infrared light. And I'd kind of call that, you know, you do that three to four days a week. I think you're going to be doing pretty darn well. You could even say two to four, I guess, depends on the time of the season. Um, compare that to a, an anti-aging skin treatment, which would be closer to like 18 to 24 inches away red light only and we're talking a minute or two and mm -hmm. like you're done the skin is so superficial it takes a much lower duration um, it, the light doesn't have to pass through any other tissues to get to its target tissue being the skin so it's just a, it's just immediate uh absorption of of those skin cells to to get that pro collagen pro elastin that anti-wrinkle effect so it takes very little to get that beautiful plump healthy looking skin everyone wants uh via red light therapy yeah, that's that's fascinating. That it's really not, it's not a big treatment, um, and the effect is is really really tangible. Um, well, I think that's kind of anticlimactic for a lot of people because yeah. people get their 
you know, get the red light therapy devices, they're so excited. It's like, I want to use this thing. I'm going to do like five or 10 or 15 minutes or whatever. And I'm going to do it once a day or twice a day. But it's like, if you're truly looking for that healthy skin, it's like a minute or two. And again, like truly you could do two, three, maybe four treatments a week. I think, I think two to three would be kind of the sweet spot, but really it takes a little to, to get what a person's looking for when it comes to anti-aging skin. Yeah, that's um that's really good news. I've I've probably been using mine a little bit too much then, <laughs> but you know, like you said, it's probably not going to be damaging. There's as far as I'm aware, there are no contraindications um for no. using red light. Is no, no, not that I'm aware of, and that's um that's the beautiful thing, and that that's kind of what I read from Dr. Michael Hamblin. I don't know if you asked him that question, but I did. Yeah. But, that's one of the beautiful things about red light therapy is it, it's extremely safe. So it's a really low risk and a very high reward from a health and wellness perspective. There's some cautions, of course, and a couple of the big ones that get asked all the time is like, uh, especially from females, if they're pregnant or breastfeeding, do you, can you still use red light therapy? And the answer is, well, yes, just don't irradiate the areas. Like if if uh, if you're pregnant, don't irradiate the womb. If you're breastfeeding, don't irradiate the breasts. Not that there's anything to show it's harmful, but we just don't know. So if you like you have shoulder pain or back pain or leg pain, we'll go ahead and treat those areas, but just don't directly irradiate uh, the, the areas, um, the womb or the, or the breast, I guess. And then the other one is is cancer. And there's some really interesting research on on red light therapy and cancer because you would think that if it's increased in cellular energy then maybe it would actually feed the metastasizing cells or or what have you um but one of my most recent interviews was actually with in in uh like an alternative or or a holistic oncologist and they actually use red light therapy or or near infrared light because there's some pretty interesting research on how again just like we were talking about inflammation and modulates that it increases or decreases it. Well, same thing with cancer cells. It's not going to accelerate the, the cancer cells or the metastasizing. It's going to, uh, there's actually some research showing that near infrared can help mitigate, prevent, or even kill some of those, those cancer cells. Um, but again, until there's like more and more and a larger body of research, you probably don't need or want to directly irradiate an active cancer site. Uh, but again, if, if you want to use red light therapy in other areas of your body, then, then go ahead. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Uh, I often wondered, you know, if you had, uh, some sort of skin cancer, if it would be beneficial to irradiate it with red light. And, um, yeah, the, the answer I've, I got from everyone who I asked that was we, we genuinely don't know. So probably hold off, <laughs> probably don't do it. Someone has to do know. the research, man. That's a huge looming answer. Like the, the implications could be, could be huge. Yeah. Well, I, I think regardless of what the answer is, it's huge. It's either you should or you shouldn't. And if you should, then we should probably know that. So we could be, you know, helping some, some people dealing with cancer if it's mm-hmm. truly beneficial. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I, I hope, I hope someone's. Again, I hope someone's putting their putting their career on the line looking into these questions. Um, They're probably getting shot down by those drug companies. Yeah, probably. I mean, if the answer if the answer is something like that, then <laughs> best of luck. Yep. Um, just out of pure curiosity, something that has troubled me, uh, and you might be able to give a really succinct answer. But what is what is the difference between heat and infrared light? Um, 
some I like sometimes I've thought is having uh, a hot bath or a hot shower going to be supplying um, any any genuine doses of um, uh, red light in a sense. Also, from my understanding, heat is infrared light, isn't it? So, like, if you turn on your stove or like like that campfire again, like if you if you have on near infrared or infrared goggles, like those things are going to light up like a Christmas tree. So yeah. they're providing some, some amount of infrared light. But when you start getting into the realm of like a hot bath or like a hot tub, I don't know. I haven't looked into that. That's an interesting question. I mean, I've thought about it too because. I know these other heat sources are providing some semblance of infrared light. I mean, that's what a that's what a sauna is. It's providing heat um, via via infrared light. So I don't really have an answer for you. It's just that's a good question to ponder. Yeah, I, I've often wondered if if some of the um, you know a lot of people feel much better after having a hot hot shower or a hot bath, and I've often wondered because you're right. If you put infrared, uh, if you put an infrared camera on that it would be lit up very, very light because it would be uh, emitting a lot of infrared energy. Um, so, and yeah, I was just wondering if if that is giving a, a, a dose of, of infrared light and maybe that's one of the reasons why um, being nice and cozy in a hot tub makes you feel so good. Yeah, and now you're going to have me thinking the rest of the day about that. <laughs> but it, I know at the end just... of this, that warmth... That warmth is literally improving circulation just by yeah. the nature of it, you know, uh, causing some vasodilation and all that good stuff. And of course, that's you know one of the mechanisms of of red and near infrared light. Um, although I don't know if the the water would necessarily be releasing nitric oxide. Again, I don't know, but I just know from a PT perspective, it's like you you throw on a a heat pack or you do something provide some sort of warmth to improve circulation and relax the muscles and, and all that good stuff. But to your point, is it, is it near infrared or is it infrared light doing it? Eh, that's a good question. Hmm. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully I Let can, me know. yeah, hopefully I can get some answers on that. Um, before we, before we wrap up, a lot of people might be interested in, in getting a device and, and it took me quite a long time um, to bite the bullet and, and look into buying one of these um combination red and near infrared panels um and being so involved the way you are with with biolight what should people be looking for um in a in a panel because without naming any names there are some brands out there who have excellent marketing but their product is not superior in any way to much cheaper products so what should we be looking at yeah, so we we touched on one of them, and that's wavelengths. I think in general, you want that six sixty eight fifty, and of course there are other <clears throat> uh, companies that offer like multiple red and multiple near infrared. I don't know about you, Cameron. I haven't seen any research to show that that does lead to better results. Although you could argue that maybe more mitochondria are getting affected by multiple wavelengths. I don't know, but but regardless, most. Most companies have the light correct, so you don't have to worry about that. It's more so the light irradiance you want to look for. Uh, to my knowledge, if you want a therapeutic dosage, you want something that's at least above 100 milliwatts per centimeter squared, um, up into the 130s. I think once you start going to the 140s, 150s, and beyond, more is not better. And, and I think there's a misnomer that a higher light irradiance leads to better penetration depth, and the penetration depth 
is is due to the wavelength itself. It's not based on uh, the light irradiance. The light irradiance just means if it's higher, they're getting more photons at a given moment or, or at, a, at a certain depth. It doesn't make it the depth deeper, so to speak. So I think somewhere in between the 100 to 130 uh, milliwatts per centimeter squared is pretty solid for a therapeutic dosage. And I would even argue, um, I don't know if you've seen our most recent products or product, Cameron, the, the mat, which mm. has a, uh, since you're going to be basically in direct contact with the LED, the light irradiance is much lower. And part of that is because I think if there's a lower light irradiance, but you're exposed to it for a longer period of time, getting underneath that bell curve is much easier. And in mm. the, I don't know if you listen to my podcast on it, but the analogy I used is if, if you're trying to cook something, whether it's on the stove or in the microwave and you have it on a high, high temperature, the chances of you hitting uh, the perfect temperature for your food is much lower versus if you do a a lower and slower temperature. I mean, a lower lower temperature, but uh, slower. The 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 forgiveness you have of getting underneath that curve is much much greater. So I think that's one of the things I'm excited about with that product, uh, uh, the mat. But regardless, 100 to 130 in general, if you're if you're looking at panels, is kind of the sweet spot, and then. A couple of things you want to look out for from a safety perspective is the EMF irradiation. Uh, I think this is kind of to your point where there's still companies integrating Bluetooth and Wi-Fi, which boggles my mind because I don't know why you need a remote to to mess with your panel because that just adds to the EMF emission and it adds to that non-native light that you're trying to combat with red light therapy. So you want something with EMF that's as low as possible. Uh, if it's plugged into electricity... There cannot be zero EMFs. I've seen some companies do this where they say their panels have zero EMFs and they're plugged into electricity. Well, that's impossible because there's going to be some semblance of EMFs from anything that's plugged into electricity. So your your laptop or your fridge or your your there, there's going to be EMFs if it's plugged into electricity. So so anyway, you want that as low as possible. So if the company doesn't list EMFs, you have to be slightly concerned. And then same thing with light flicker. And BioLight, I believe, was the first company to really tackle this issue with. Just like EMFs, uh, you want to reduce the light flicker as much as possible because just like being under fluorescent lights in an office, if you're exposed to that light flicker, which is invisible to the human eye, but of course our brain is picking up those signals, um, you don't want to be exposed to that more than you already are. So you, you hopefully they're listing their light flicker so you can see what that's like. Um, so those are the big ones. The, the, the spectra, again, that's usually locked and loaded by most companies. But you really want to look at the light irradiance and then EMF emission and light flicker. And then if people are just wondering what size in general, this is a question I get a lot. If you're just wanting to dip your toes into red light therapy, I don't see anything wrong with getting a handheld device. Mm -hmm. A, at least you get a try try red light therapy. Maybe you want to use it on your brain or you like you're trying to treat a like a wound or, or a smaller issue like the thyroid. And that way you can see if red light therapy really resonates with you. Uh, secondly, if it's a rechargeable device then it does have zero EMFs and it does have zero light flicker because it's not plugged into electricity. So that can be seen as a pro, I suppose. Um, and then it's very portable. And then you can kind of look up to the the next size up, which is more of like a tabletop uh, model, excuse me, um, where you can treat a larger area, let's say a quarter to a third of your body. Uh, but those typically are going to have a higher light irradiance. So if you're looking to treat maybe the brain or things that are deeper, you'll 
maybe have a more efficient treatment because it has a little more uh, power behind it. Um, and then the next size up typically is like a full body device, which I argue, I know it's quite the investment, but if you look at the research and you've listened to what Cameron and I have talked about and, and his other podcasts and you believe in the healing qualities of red light therapy, then I believe that is by far the best bang for your buck. Cause just like we talked about getting systemic exposure, um, or I should say getting full body exposure to red light therapy is going to lead to the systemic benefits of modulating inflammation, improving circulation, optimizing mitochondrial health and, and everything else that comes along with red light therapy. Uh, so those are kind of like the main devices on the market are, are those types of sizes, the handheld tabletop, which is like the size of a sheet of paper, so to speak, and then a full body device. Yeah, awesome. That's that's a really good rundown. I think it took me it took me a long time to sort of work through that because yeah, like I said before, some companies have like great marketing, their websites look great. And then you look at their products and they're they, you know, they're no different to other ones that are much, much cheaper on, on the market. So um and I, I know um there are a lot of people who have had um great results using using BioLite. And um, if look, if the Australian dollar wasn't so bad right now, I'd I would have one being shipped over right now. But <laughs> um, yeah, the the shipping the shipping costs to Australia are just ridiculous right now. But one day, one day, and I I am very interested in the in the um, the red light device that uh, goes in your mouth. Uh, that uh, that seems very very interesting to me. And you know, like you said before. Um, Teeth can be a, a great cause of disease if they're if they're not um, if they're not treated well. Um, so if we can keep those healthy, that would be that would be fantastic. And like you said, it's uh, you don't need you don't need to spend your whole day exposing yourself to red light, um, which is what's so great about all of this. Um, but before we wrap up, I wanted to ask about um, any synergistic. Um, sort of things that can go along with red light that help to improve. I know, I know there's been a bit of talk about the use of methylene blue and red light, um, at the same time. Uh, and I've, I've heard quite a bit about these, um, using things like, uh, any sort of chlorophyll rich foods, uh, green tea as well being, uh, great combinations to use with red light because of the way that the light molecules interact with their metabolites. Um, have you heard uh, much about, you know, boosting the efficacy of red light with these other compounds? No, other than what you've alluded to uh, from like a supplemental perspective, but I've never dabbled in methylene blue myself, at least right. not yet. Uh, but even just in general with my diet, I do take uh, uh, like some organic chlorella, organic, uh, is it spirulina? Yeah. Daily. So I'm getting that on a consistent basis. And if that helps with red light or sunlight exposure, then great. But as far as like other uh, modalities, I'm aware of the, the vibrational plate is good because vibration is good for the mitochondria, right. hyperbaric oxygen. Um, I interviewed uh, oh, the guy that owns the kind of the biggest hyperbaric chamber company in, in the States, Dr. Jason Somers, and he also has a book out that's very well written. But he and I went back and forth, like, which order is best? We know that there's a very nice synergistic effect with hyperbaric oxygen and red light therapy, but like, which order? Because hyperbaric kind of leads to vasoconstriction, even though it improves oxygenation into your body, which is kind of um, 
kind of backwards, it would seem. But uh, and then, of course, red light therapy causes that vasodilation. So you don't want to vasodilate before and then kind of constrict in the hyperbaric, or do you want to go backwards and oxygenate and constrict in the hyperbaric and then open up and um, energize post? So I don't know. We went back and forth on that. But I think he and I, in the end, it was just like, as long as you do them together, you're probably going to get a good result. So we're probably talking maybe a nuanced difference. And then the other one is is uh, like cryotherapy or, or uh, you know, I would jump in the river over here where I live close, um, nice and cold. Just like you could do that with a sauna uh, and kind of, again, get that vasoconstriction dilation, kind of get that pumping mechanism. Uh, same thing with, with red light therapy. You could do one before, uh, let's say, you know, do cryotherapy, then red light therapy. Um, or, and then you could do all three, if you had access to, you could do like hyperbaric red light therapy, cryo, but then it's like, what else are you going to do with the rest of your day? <laughs> if you're doing all these biohacks. Um, so there's those, uh, another one just based on the Ari Wooden book. Like if you're looking to lose weight or get, lose some fat, combining fasting with red light therapy, and then the best bang for your buck would be fasting plus exercise and red light therapy for some mega uh, fat loss type of things. And then of course, there's a bunch of other adjuvants and supplements you could add in for mitochondrial health, like astaxanthin and, uh, um, carnosine, um, you know, spermidine, physotin, uh, curcumin, you know, all these other components that would boost mitochondrial health from a molecular standpoint, I think would probably lead to a synergistic effect, but, um, the big ones that I know of are the vibrational plate, HBOT, cryotherapy, and then, you know, fasting and exercise if you're looking for some weight loss. That's fascinating. Um, yeah, a, a lot of the places, or at least the place where I go and, and do sauna uh, somewhat infrequently, they have um, hyperbaric oxygen as well. Um, I haven't tried it yet, but um, might be something to look into. Yeah, um, yeah awesome. Um, I won't keep you any longer because... I know you're probably really busy um, and I will make sure I put links to um, the BioLite shop and the Red Light Report uh, so that everyone can sort of keep keep up with you. Um, I really love the podcast. It's just a great way to um, keep up to date with all things Red Light and um, yeah, you've, your ebook has been very helpful as well um, that you continually update uh, as the years go on. So. I'll make sure I link all of that so people can keep in touch with you. Um, thanks so much for taking some time to speak with me today, Mike. It's been great. Yeah, my pleasure, Cameron. It's been a it's been a blast, you know, conversing with someone else who's as you know interested and well versed in in red light therapy. So you know, my pleasure. Awesome. All right. Um, I'll talk to you soon. Then we'll keep in touch. Definitely. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Mike. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to keep up with Mike's work, I've put some links in the episode notes. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on Spotify and YouTube and leave up to a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This is a simple no-cost way to support my work and help me reach more listeners. Please feel free to leave comments on my YouTube channel as I do try and read through as many as I can. I've also put links to all of my social media platforms in the episode notes if you'd like to keep up to date with the podcast, get information about health, or if you'd just like to reach out to me in general. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Take care.